Technology has given companies the ability to deliver products to consumers almost immediately. From Amazon's two-day shipping to ordering a ride on Uber, we live in a world that's absolutely obsessed with instant gratification. And let's face it, gone are the days of having to wait weeks for packages to arrive or even having to block off time on your schedule to pick up groceries. We can do it all by the touch of our fingertips these days. And since the pandemic has happened, this need to become omnichannel has only increased. But first, what is Omnichannel, and how does it relate to the restaurant business? Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. Square, a popular payments platform, says the average restaurateur expects that 62% of their 2021 business revenue will come from delivery and takeout, with 18% of restaurant owners and managers expecting to become completely dependent on delivery and takeout in 2021. Essentially, your customers want your product, they want it now, and they don't want to spend a lot of time figuring out how to order. For restaurants, being omnichannel is part of the restaurant experience now, and it means they're giving guests the ability to order and pay for their food seamlessly and without a major effort. Think of the time where you may have been binging on your favorite Netflix show and desperately wanted pizza, but didn't want to go down to your favorite pizza shop to order the pie. You pick up your phone, open up an app, and place an order. That's a restaurant successfully being an omni-channel operation. Now, being an omni-channel operation doesn't just mean they're on Seamless or DoorDash. It also means that they offer a wide variety of ways for customers to order or pick up food, or company-branded merchandise and other items. For example, since the pandemic, a lot of restaurants have paused using traditional, reusable menus. Many have opted to create QR codes for customers to scan using their phone's camera that will then give them a digital version of their menu. Some restaurants have gone as far as to allow their customers to order and pay right from that same QR link. Having access to this technology not only reduces safety concerns regarding COVID exposure, but also allows customers to have more control over their experience. Instead of waiting for the server to arrive to ask for more chips and salsa and drinks, they can request these extras with a touch of a button. This often leads to happy customers and faster table turnaround times. The network of ordering platforms, such as directly from a restaurant or via third-party delivery, fulfillment methods, such as delivery and pickup, and in-store technology, such as kiosks and contactless payment, is ever-expanding and becoming increasingly more complex. So although restaurants beefing up their omni-channel presence has made our lives easier as diners on many levels and have helped restaurants attract new customers by showcasing themselves to a wider audience, it has come with some challenges. For example, if the company is working with a third-party delivery service, which we've heard so much about during the pandemic, it may not be easy to constantly update their ever-changing menu or gather customer data. There's also an increase of workload for the restaurant, which is extra tough today given the staffing issues we've seen across the industry. Lastly, restaurant operators may also need to subscribe to tech providers if using third-party platforms, which can be pretty costly. Remember, the main goal of an omni-channel operation is to give the customers what they want immediately. But because this has become so ingrained in the overall restaurant experience, it's crucial for restaurant operators to keep track of where and how their customers are interacting with them and make sure the experience is seamless and consistent no matter what. Zach, have you implemented e-commerce and omni-channel solutions in your restaurant and bar? Uh, You know, just like we said we were talking about earlier in this, we had no choice. We had to. The the beginning of the pandemic was basically the the biggest sign in the world. We had started implementing this before it. Obviously, we we didn't have a ton of items that made sense for us to do delivery on. Uh, We had some of our retail beers going out, like packaged beers. Mm -hmm. But once we hit proper pandemic, we didn't have a choice. Uh, just like from a from a regulatory standpoint standpoint to be safe for our customers, for our staff, for COVID regulations, we we had to. And I mean, every, literally every business I know in the neighborhood had to implement. If you're just talking QR codes all the way up to signing up for every third party delivery service or was just to make sure you weren't missing any possible avenues to get picked up. We we got lucky and we kind of had we were able to manage that more successfully than I think a lot of places because it's a lot of work on top of just running your day-to-day you've got to suddenly learn how these systems work it upends like what you're used to in a lot of ways and during the pandemic you didn't know what to expect on a day-to-day basis yeah that's so interesting so I think one of the things that I loved about the influence of online ordering and third party was that it was allowing me to try restaurants that I had never had a chance to try before. And that some of them that I didn't even know existed in my neighborhood. I mean, some of them may not exist in your neighborhood. I remember seeing things pop up and I'm like, how did so many restaurants open during the pandemic? And then I'm like, oh, these are not, they're not a physical location. 
they're just like they're setting up or they're like working their ghost kitcheting they're like doing their thing um and then also too i remember like the it actually became a bit of a problem but there were certain restaurants around town that were super exclusive that never did delivery before and now all of a sudden that was like their line of income so they were selling these like expensive dishes right i mean hopefully the food is traveling well for these people god knows they're paying a lot of money for it but that was like one of those things that people were like i'm gonna treat myself to like a $250 dinner uh, that's going to be brought to my door. And that did kind of like take the idea of like fine dining and transporting it to, I, I honestly thought it was kind of cool because like you're still, they still use the plastic solo cups that they use for the same condiment holders at like these high end 400 per, $400 a head restaurants that we do at smaller restaurants. It's like some, some things you just can't dress up, but it was interesting to you see. Gotta, you got to stay home. You do. And then I think the pandemic taught us that. But yeah, yeah, I, I think, did you like, I know on our side in New York, we, you know, that, that was how we got through my fiance and I would treat ourselves to like a really nice meal every once in a while that we missed and we wanted to support. Oh yeah. But what did you like, like, did you think even outside pandemic times, like, like, does this sort of thing, like what I, I find, I've always found that there are certain things that transport really well and I'm like super down to order that way, but I don't know if it exists well for, for like, it's, it's a different kind of of service for different types of restaurants. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, in Chicago, talking about the high-end restaurants that pivoted, the big success story here was Alinea and doing and um, Nick Kakonis's restaurant where they decided to do meal kits and to-go items. And Alinea has a price point of it's a prefix menu. It's I think originally it was three hundred dollars a person, five hundred dollars or maybe even upwards of that if you did wine pairing. And they did these amazing meal kits. And I like that they did that um, it was baked, like some of them were only baked halfway through. And then when you got home, you did the rest of the stuff yourself. So it made that experience of the restaurant at home, it it kind of elevated that whole thing. Yeah. So it wasn't like you were going to get hey, we know that a beef Wellington isn't going to do very well if it's sitting there for 30 minutes between door to door. So we're going to get it all ready for you. And then you're going to put it in the oven. You're going to make sure that everything is nice and perfect when you get home. So I like that they did it that way. I think for me, the basic staples always travel. Like there's some basics that always travel well. But even when I think about like a burger, like separating the bun so that by the time you get it, it's not super soggy. I think there's little things that I saw a lot of restaurant operators doing during the time that was trying to make those items more easily traveled. Yeah. I honestly noticed that so much. It's like, I think everyone learned, they were learning beforehand because delivery became so much more of a thing. Like it used to be, if you're a certain kind of restaurant, like why would you offer delivery? No one, no one gets product XYZ delivered, but that's completely turned on its head. Not just because of the pandemic. I feel like that was coming anyway, Mm -hmm. but you're right. Like I did see online a couple articles about how in New York, all the, the very fancy high end places have actually pretty much already killed off their, delivery but i don't know if that's that's very surprising mm-hmm. but i think a lot of the places that i think a year and a half ago would have kind of been like tepid on the idea have kind of like jumped headlong into it and their product has gotten better as a result like they're yeah everyone's kind of like like the the knowledge is becoming a little more passed around and and it's making it easier for like them, for themselves to justify it mm-hmm. i think the other thing that came out of this whole trend for me though was the convenience factor, which we talk so much about when we hear about omni-channel, but even the QR code menus that you see now, I mean, there's been this debate of our our QR code digital menus going away. Are we going back to paper? I don't know. I think it's going to be a real mix. And I think it depends on the price point of the restaurant, to be quite honest. Yeah. But the convenience of seeing, for example, when I Google a restaurant, knowing that 90% of them have their Google pages up to date. So I know what times they're open, when they're not open. They've got a list of all of their, hey, you can order directly from us, or if not, you can order from Grubhub or DoorDash or whatever. Here it all is. To me, having the digital presence and allowing you to update everything at the tip of your fingertips feels so 2021. Like that's the experience that diners are looking for i honestly i went to dinner a couple of weeks ago in brooklyn and we sat down at a german beer garden afterwards the the restaurant was working off of a qr code system where it pulled it up and it gave you their entire list of like all the german beers that they had and then all you do is like click the button what you wanted and they would they would bring it to you that was the first time i'd ever experienced like ordering from my phone in an, an establishment and it was for a place like that where i was like i'm just ordering a beer it was incredibly convenient. And I remember thinking like, this is great. Like if, if this makes a server's job easier as someone who like, I always, 
run decisions and stuff by my staff. Kind of like, is this going to make your life easier or harder? Yeah, I like that. And it seemed like they were just like bumping, like they were pumping through service so fast. And it was initially started, I think it must have been like part of for safety, like everyone seated outside. So they probably have like a, a server who has to cover more territory. And this probably makes it a lot more easier for them to like make sure they're getting things out. And it wasn't like they were scarce. Like I could still talk to my server if I needed to. Yeah. But this, I think like it really sped up the flow. Like, like you were saying before, getting the tables to turn over is usually more about like making sure that the pace can always just stay at their, some people are going to stay there for two hours, whether they want to or not. Sure. And some people stay there for two and a half because they can't, you know, they can't get another, they can't put an order in or whatever. So I think, and when you look at that, like the, the convenience factor for both the customer and for the restaurant it does make more sense. And didn't you guys also do this with craft beer as well at the bar and shipping it during the pandemic? Or when did you actually implement that? We actually started, we got super lucky. We found a site that specialized in craft beer because nothing really existed up until that point. We had tried Drizzly, but it wasn't quite perfect, like quite good for craft beer, just the way the product works. Okay. And we, we had signed up with a different product comp- or a different company called Bev who focused on national and local delivery, which really made it easy for us to when we needed them most. I mean, we signed up in February and then everything went to hell in March. So we, we got super lucky, um, but it allowed us to more directly appeal to people who were out there to shop for craft beer. Where Drizzly is, is great. Like if you know you want a bottle of red wine and a bottle of whiskey, like you can you can get that. Mm-hmm. But like when someone comes on, it makes us, it really enabled us to set up a digital storefront to like let people shop for craft beer in a way that takes the, process that you get coming in and like walking through the fridges uh, and like selecting what you want and putting it online. And then you can get it, you know, brought to you, whether you're in Midtown, whether you're in Midtown or you're in LA, you know, you can get the same stuff brought to you, obviously a little faster if you're in Midtown, but the, uh, the, the idea was the same. And it it was actually great for us because people, you know, wanted that kind of comfort during the pandemic specifically, they wanted the comfort of like going out and trying these beers, but so many of the can releases and stuff like that, weren't happening anymore. And it allowed us to kind of continue that process or that, that tradition. I, that's what I'm talking about. The, the, it allowed us to like allow people to shop for beer in a way that they couldn't when the pandemic was going on. And it seems like it's going to keep going. People, our orders haven't really slowed down, even though they can go out and shop now. I think the convenience factor and the fact that we're allowing people access to beers that they can't easily get yeah. in most corners of the country, even in parts of the yeah. city is like, it's something that people really like. So I like it. I, if I want a spicy margarita yeah. and I want it, I'll send you some beer. Yeah, perfect. All right, I'll send you my address, Zach. Here we go. I'm interested to see though because it's like all comes down to local laws again. We got a huge windfall of government support for changing certain things, like putting to cocktails to go here in New York, which is something they were really hard fast against for a long time. And now there's a huge debate going on whether or not they're going to allow that to continue. Yeah. And I think given the lack of overall stimulus and and kind of uh, recovery money that we're getting from the government directly, it's either going to have to come in the form of direct stimulus or they're going to have to be like, okay, keep operating in a way that's going to allow you to see a bigger return, like bigger sales. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be stuff like that. Like people, I think the idea like that people are going to be ordering delivery more now because it's become more ingrained in the last year is one of those comforts and conveniences that I think we all now will, we won't take for granted. Oh yeah. I totally agree. And it's like, if I'm sitting on the couch, I'm like, I'm like, Okay, yeah, I'm getting this food. I want a, I want a spicy margarita with it. I'm going to I'm going to tack that on the order. Yeah. It would really suck to lose the ability to make that extra money in a sale. Mhm. I agree. Joining us today is Sherry Goldstein, owner and operator of Square Cafe, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This spot features a variety of options for vegetarian, vegan, and gluten-free guests, and is known not only for their delicious seasonal menu items, but also their incredible support and involvement with the community. The cafe's ethos revolves around the locals, their workers, and those they serve. Sherry is dedicated to supporting community talent by using her cafe as a gallery to showcase local artists, in addition to partnering with multiple nonprofits on fundraisers, special special events, and promotions. But Sherry made headlines when she and her team managed to raise $250,000 through crowdfunding in order to help fund her restaurant's move and expansion during the pandemic, which we definitely want to hear more about. Sherry, you just celebrated your 18th anniversary of Square Cafe. Congratulations, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat today. Yeah. So how did you get started in the restaurant business? Let's start with that. How did this all begin for you? Uh, it- <laughs> Not not typically. Really, it was a pipe dream. I um, worked in drug and alcohol treatment for 13 plus years before I opened Square Cafe. 
And, you know, it was, it was just this thought that I had to have a cool little cafe that, you know, my friends would hang out and it would have cool music and cool art and great coffee and great pastries. And, you know, it was like this crazy fantasy. And that was happening in my head for about five years. And in a few years into it, I started looking for spaces and looking around in different Pittsburgh neighborhoods. And then everything kind of fell into place in 2003. And I found a spot in a, in a neighborhood that I lived in and ended up starting with breakfast and lunch. And it's, it's, it's 100% different than what I thought it would be. And it's a million times greater. That's awesome. Zach, did you find that that was the, did you have a similar thing when you first started on your restaurant journey? We're on polar opposites there because I, you know, my focus is definitely more on lunch and dinner. And I know from like my friends in the industry that doing breakfast and lunch is like a, a completely different lifestyle and different, different focus. But entering into the industry like that, definitely. I, I, I always like had similar to you. I had like the idea that I wanted to go open someplace that I would be happy hanging out with my friends at. Um, we're like a beer focused bar and that was like, you know, becoming really big at the time. But yeah, it's definitely one of those projects where you think you know what you're going to get into. And then once the door opens up for the first day, you're like, well, that was a nice idea, but this is reality. So, <laughs> but 18 years, that's incredible. I, 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 I just, we were speaking about this earlier uh, before we signed on, but we just turned nine last week. We were like a day off on business anniversary birthdays. And uh, I'm just really, really curious. Like, do you, if you could like go back in time, like the, the week before you opened in 2003 and tell yourself like, okay, you're never going to believe what's going to happen in the next like almost two decades. What, like, what would you tell yourself? Cause that's, I remember like thinking back, I was like, if I could go back to 2011 and tell myself, get ready. Like I would, there's just like a million things I would say. Like, what would, what would you tell past you? Yeah, that's great. I, um, I would say, uh, relax a little bit more, like chill out <laughs> <laughs> a little anal and intense and can be a bit of a pain to other people, I think at times. So, you know, I want things to be perfect and yeah, there is some friction and there also is some gray area where I've got to be comfortable. In the beginning, it's really hard. You, you come in, I came in as a bit of a perfectionist, which is a terrible mindset for any public facing business. Uh, you want to do well, but you don't want to, you know, stifle, like stifle all your creativity, just trying to make everything perfect every time you do it. But yeah, in the beginning, I was really hard on myself. I feel you. Working endless hours, which isn't that different today, but yeah, um, it felt differently then. Different mentality, right? Yeah. So when you first started the cafe, what did it look like then versus what it's morphed into today? So then it was a little, we had a bakery cabinet and an, I think I had an ice cream cabinet at the time. So that was like the, when you would walk in, we had an espresso machine, a couple counter seats. Mostly it was a dining room. The whole space was only 2,000 square feet. And the dining area is with the espresso bar was probably about nine, you know, nine hundred to a thousand square feet. So it wasn't, it was not that big. Today, that morphed, that changed annually all the time. We were constantly upgrading, up mm -hmm. scaling, de changing the details, creating more counter space, squeezing tables more together, getting rid of the bakery cabinet because that wasn't, you know, where the money was, and so everything changed all the time. And then you, you mentioned a little bit. We did a big crowd funding campaign so that we could move. And we moved in over last summer, summer of 2020, and opened October 1st of 2020 in 8,000 square feet. Wow. So it's a world of difference. Yeah. So I want to talk to you more about that. What? And you did that during the pandemic when so many other restaurants were either closing down or having to, you know, close down one of their restaurants or chop their operations. And so, and you did the total opposite, which is so fascinating. Fascinating and maybe crazy. <laughs> but you did it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's working out. It's working out. Well, a couple things led to that. We had, I, I had been in that space this little 2000 square feet for 17 years. And the last couple years over there, I was having some neighbor disputes just, and it was very petty and it felt really uncomfortable. And I yeah. dealt with our local borough on some really trivial things and got cited for things that I, uh, were happening at my restaurant that were happening at other restaurants on the same block. And people were not getting cited because that people were complaining about them. So I had a complainer next to me mm -hmm. and it just got more and more uncomfortable. And so 
I wasn't, I was in my mind looking for another space as my lease would run out, but which wasn't until our 20th anniversary because I, I had signed a 10-year lease after my two five years. So there's another gentleman that was a customer that had some space in a local neighborhood a couple, a couple miles away. We had talked a few times about doing something as a pop-up or in a, as a trailer kind of a thing in his neighborhood. And then there's a neighborhood between those two neighborhoods called East Liberty. It's in Pittsburgh. And he had another building there. It's a really old building. It's one of the oldest buildings in our city uh, from the late 1800s. And it was one of the original Bell Telephone buildings. So that was our telephone service. And Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, actually, in the basement, there are millions of telephone lines and boards. Yeah. And- yeah. I was going to say, do you have all of this historical items yeah. left over? <laughs> there's... It's probably junk, but there's stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> it looks kind of cool, um, though. Retro. So he had a tenant that he was um, trying to get out of that space that their business just wasn't working. And so he asked me, you know, am I interested? And I, it was a no-brainer for me. It was, uh, we jumped on it. And, uh, but it was a big move, obviously. It was, um, you know, I could see everything in my restaurant right. from wherever right. I stood or sat. And uh, this this new place is very different. We all have walkie talkies. We're walking around like they did it in the Gap in the early nineties. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, your pieces. Wow. So you're very high tech yeah. now. Oh, we're high tech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but but what made you want to go do the crowdfunding aspect and not to the traditional loan from the bank? I mean, did you know that the community was going to be so supportive? Because I heard that you raised the money really fast. We did. Um, we, we're really active in the community and we've created, you know, our, I, I call our business a co-op, even though, you know, it's a corporation, obviously, but it's really very cooperative. We're really active in the community. We participate in whatever our customers are up to and into. We're happy to support. We partner with many nonprofits around. And so we have a lot of really good customer support. It's become a community gathering place. We've, we've, We've been in our restaurant many times where neighbors who would just wave to each other now are sitting next to each other and and getting to know each other. And they become not on their street, but at the cafe. So it's it's been interesting. Mm-hmm. So we did feel confident that we would have, you know, some, we would be able to do it. I also had opened a, another business in 2018, in the summer of 2018, in my same neighborhood. It's a little market and prepared food store. And for that, it's called My Goodness. It's a great little spot. It's all local products. And, okay. And so for that, we did a little crowdfunder. It was just $30,000. We literally raised it in 36 hours. Wow. And um, it was really quick. So my experience was good with it. And we had a lot of room. Also, opening a prepared food business in 2018, like, <laughs> good move. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a good move, and yeah, it, we're still figuring it out. It's a whole different business than a restaurant. Oh yeah, as, as we've all learned, actually, right? It's becoming more. Yeah. <laughs> you don't realize it's not the same thing when you're planning to go as it is to stay. Yeah. So you're so intentional about your act, like the way that you deal with the community and how you really bring them into your space. I know that you're also really intentional with your hiring practices. Can you talk to us a little bit about your ethos around that? Because I think it's something that a lot of operators could also learn from. Sure. That's. That's, you know, and it, it's, we're 18 years old, so we do, it, it's taken a long time, but we have a very strong system and a very strong team. But, you know, I go into the interview process with really high expectations and very clear messaging. We are who we are. There's a culture that's been created at Square Cafe. You've got to believe in it, buy into it, and be a part of that in order to make it work. Not not to knock on any chains or or any other businesses, but sure. you know this isn't just you know the ju- you know whatever chain is local that you can work here or work in Miami or work anywhere else. It's just a different feel and and it's hard work. And I will tell them this is not an easy job. It's very rewarding and it's fun. And for the restaurant business to for the most part not to work at night is golden. That's a huge change. It is a different draw for people, but lifestyle wise, being able to provide, like you said, just like a good stable community vibe. That's, that's a lot of restaurants tout that and then don't actually provide. So it's, if you're, if you're one of those people who can hire and provide that sort of environment for people to come and work, it's, 
weird that we're only now in like the last few years, I think coming to that reckoning uh, as an industry where people are like, wow, this, this is pretty toxic in a lot of cases, uh, something we should probably address. And it's, it's good to see that, you know, someone who's been at this for 18 years has kind of been living, living that and walking that walk. So well, we, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been sober since for a long, over 30 years and we do, we do. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We do breakfast and lunch. We haven't had a liquor license. We do now, but we didn't all these years. And so, and we're, you know, we're up, we have to be up and ready to go at six. You're cooking. And so the lifestyle of a late night partying or drinking, drugging, whatever, it just doesn't fit. I have a lot of people that find their way to us that are in halfway houses, have been in halfway houses, have been in and out of treatment and, you know, are just trying to create a safe environment for themselves. And, and we have the opportunity to provide that without just having that as a part of our sales category. It's a safe place. So that's, that's been good. And we've, you know, I've put, a, we've helped a lot of people get clean or get sober and get into treatment if, if it was necessary. But um, I just, we can't, we don't put up with, you know, you can't come in hungover. You just can't do it. You can't flip eggs at 6 a.m. Yeah, you really don't want that. <laughs> so d does that mean that you're, are you partnered with, are those some of the local not-for-profits that you're partner with that help with the workforce and some of your workforce programs? Yes. Yeah. I, I've been on the board of a local women's halfway house. It's the only uh, women's halfway house freestanding in Pennsylvania, the oldest one. And so I've been on the board with them for a long time, 14, 15 years. And we've had many of their residents come through and be employed with us either, either during treatment or even after treatment and have stayed. We work with um, the Goodwill Industries. We work with a couple other treatment kind of facilities. We work with a couple schools that have students that are on some type of spectrum or that aren't what people might say is typical. So we've had autistic kids, I have Down syndrome. We have, you know, there's, doesn't really matter as long as you want to work and you have a good attitude and you're, you know, like you can, we'll find a place for you to work with us. I love that. No, that's really refreshing. Honestly, like I, I come from a different line where we are, we're a night focused place because we do lunch and dinner. But like you said, the, but we try to hire from within our community as much as possible. Uh, of some other guests we've spoken with, I've mentioned this, but I feel like it really does a lot to have people invested in the place because they live nearby uh, or if they just feel comfortable coming into work. You don't want one of those places where people show up already begrudging the kind of space they're going to be in, especially if they're in a phase of life where they're looking to make some changes. Um, but we've definitely, we, we do very, very well. I don't know how, especially as you guys grow bigger, how long people tend to stick around, but we've been very, very fortunate with uh, good staff retention. And that, I feel like in the industry, that's a, a decent sign that you know, you're doing at least a couple things right. Uh, no one's ever going to come in like things super, super. I mean, we, we've been very, very lucky with that, but no one's going to come in and, and say that they never want to leave. But um, I honestly think that you've, it sounds like you've done something pretty special. So You Want to Run a Restaurant is powered by Back of House, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find, filter, and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free, and don't forget to subscribe to the free weekly newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups that I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see every week. It's built for restaurant operators and those in the industry industry and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology. Follow Back of House on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all other channels. It's, it's good. We've, you know, my general manager came in as a part-time server, part-time cook, because he was raised in the restaurant, you know, he worked at chains from the time he was a teenager and could do dishes. And wow! And he's been with us for 15 years, um, and is now the general manager. I mean, he can do everything. He yeah. has done everything, and he's, you know, we covet him. But I, I have all my other managers are seven years, nine years, eight years. I have servers and baristas that have also been there for six and seven and eight years. So. And then, of course, there's new people all the time. We expanded so much that we've had to hire a good amount of yeah. people. Yeah. Wow. And I, I mean, what is it that you think, is it just your, 
the way you the way you treat them? Do you give them special offers? Do you are they all full time and or no? You said one of them's part time. Are some of them? I mean, how many are full time and how many are part time? How does that work there? Yeah, right now everybody's working at least forty hours a week. We have a wow. I mean, for the I, I can say everybody, but we do have a couple autistic kids that work twenty hours a week. Um, but yeah, the the kind of like the rest of the staff. We have such a crisis in hiring right now that, you know, my ideal goal is for people to work for kind of long days and then at, at 35 to 40 hours. Um, we just aren't able to do that right now. So people are mm -hmm. up for that. But I think it's it, it, that that. To me, that schedule is ideal because when you have a call off or when you have something where you need to fill in, you you have people that aren't worn out that are typically working four days a week and and don't mind putting in an extra day or two, and then you have that are refreshed and really look forward to coming to work and work it work it hard, and then they know they have these these decent sized breaks. Five day work weeks are where we are right now, and the managers are always at five days, but the other servers and cooks. It's really nice to keep them at four days and, and in that full-time kind of range. That's an incredibly good philosophy. And, and speaking from experience, I think across the industry, how many people come in based on how so many people make more money? Um, if they're waiting tables, they want the extra shifts because that means more money. But the truth is, it's like if you don't come in sharp and you do those five, six-day weeks of just backbreaking work, it really does change. The, it changes the vibe of the business too. Uh, having exhausted front house is is really really tough, um, so that's really great that you consider that. I, I I remember in the beginning thinking like, oh, this is how it's going to work, and I was you know working front of house quite a bit back then as well, and learned the very hard way that you know six seven day weeks, you know you can you can focus on a bunch of stuff, but putting yourself out there like that doesn't usually end well if you're in the long run. So um, that's a really great philosophy. I'd like to get back to being able to actually implement it, but. We'll get there. So I want to talk about your menu and the fact that you're a sustainable restaurant. I know I was reading on your website all of the things that you guys are doing to be sustainable, and I think it's awesome. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that? Well, you know, I think it's really our responsibility as humans to maintain our planet and think about sustainability in terms of the planet, but in terms of lifestyle and people's energy and just what does sustainability mean in relationships and, and all of that stuff. So of course, you know, we've changed light fixtures and we've changed plumbing ways. We compost thousands of pounds of food waste. Our trash uh, is minimal compared to our composting. We, you know, I offer healthcare and dental and vision and life insurance. Um, we offer paid time off all of those things that enable you to stay upright, right? And not beat up and, and, and worn out and, and that kind of stuff. Right, so right. I feel like if, if I want the benefit, if I have healthcare, you should have healthcare. There's no reason I should have healthcare and you're working as hard as I, you know, you're working, you should have healthcare also. So we've offered healthcare for a long time. I love that. I love that you're like your own active care is like, put out to your employees as well. And then the community cares for you in your time of need as well. It's just this, I don't know, it's this great cycle. But yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because we, during the early stages of the pandemic, our space was very small. There was no, you know, first of all, it was no dine-in anyways, but even as things started to loosen up, our space was so small that there would never be dine-in where we were. You, there was no six feet. We were literally, it was very family style. And we turned the right. front house of our restaurant into a grocery store, essentially. And customers did just kind of belly up and support us in moving all of that fresh product that we had in-house and selling it. We unloaded, gave away with our local produce company about 8,000 pounds of produce in the first three weeks of the pandemic because you, you probably know, you know, Zach, every, the food was there. It was grown. It was in shipment. It was coming. And it wasn't getting to the grocery stores. You know, there were so many ramifications of the pandemic, but we had it. We had a, we had a produce provider that had, you know, thousands of square feet of refrigeration that was just going to go bad. 
because the schools were out, the hospitals, you know, all of these things were happening. So we, we really liked that relationship with the community and supporting each other. We, uh, we had a very similar uh, trajectory there. We, we, my model is very different because the, the laws in the state were allowed to have a store up front for retail where we sell beer and, and a bunch of groceries to go as well. Uh, cheeses and, and bread and things like that. But at the beginning of the pandemic, my business partner and I decided the same thing. We had so much stuff that we had ordered anyway, and we just decided to turn around and really beef up the store offerings because we couldn't do any in, on-site operations and the community clearly really needed it. Uh, people were kind of panicking. No, no one was really comfortable in Manhattan going into the grocery stores amongst big crowds of people when, when there was so little information out about like what was actually happening. And those first few weeks, I remember the the interactions I was having with people about just how happy they were to see produce and things like that available in a store that they didn't normally equate with that. They were like, this was, was kind of amazing. And still think back on those interactions and how long ago it feels. And just kind of, it's one of the, the weird, and the things were getting really scary. That was one of the most like lively or one of the most uplifting things that happened during the whole pandemic. Uh, and it came not really out of necessity. It just kind of felt like the right thing to do. Um, so um, it's cool that you guys were able to do the same thing and it, it did, uh, by goodness or uh, my goodness do the same thing. Did you guys, were you guys still operating during the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, actually we were pretty new, right? A year and a half old. And so we became a staple for lots and lots of people where we, we hadn't really broken into the market yet. So it really kicked off my goodness's grocery sales, of course, and prepared stuff, both. Was there anything else that you did during the pandemic or that you switched around that you think you're going to keep or have you, or you've continued to do? Yeah, we, yeah, for sure. We, um, the one thing that we did was we, we got, we stopped using all third party delivery service and went to our own delivery drivers. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. As the, we, you know, we knew the pandemic was going to shut down within that week before it was very Mm -hmm. similar in New York as it was in Pittsburgh and Ohio. And so we knew they were going to shut us down. And through those three days right before that, we, I just sat down with my managers and we developed a plan on how we were going to make this happen without laying people off and creating volume. So we turned our personal vehicles into delivery vehicles. We started to deliver groceries and our prepared stuff. Of course, they, people ordered right off the menu. We went to an online menu ordering system. Um, and we and then since then, we've bought two vehicles that we've branded with our logo and they're kind of cute little all logoed out and we deliver our own stuff. We don't use third parties anymore. I love that. The, you're absolutely right. In terms of debates that like went on during COVID and in restaurant operations wise, uh, a third party delivery was the hottest one. And across the board too, I feel like people who weren't even in the industry were, were weighing in on it. And I think it really brought to light a lot of the, the kind of bad practices that some of the businesses had and how the talk about sustainability, the, the way that their business model works was one that was never going to benefit uh, a lot of restaurants, unless you're at a certain scale. Oh yeah. Um, so I think that forced the conversation for uh, the industry to kind of be like, we have to deal with this before it becomes a problem that outgrows the the people that it's serving. So we had a, lo- a lot of people around us do the same thing. We uh, we didn't have a third party delivery service, but we kind of enacted our own version of it online. We went independent as well, uh, and the businesses all around us, we kind of all powwowed to kind of talk to each other through it because there's always like one missing part. Like, I'm not really sure if my web development guy is going to do a good job with this or like, could you help me out with like, like an extra guy? If maybe, you know, if he's, if you're willing to split delivery guys down the block, maybe we could like pool resources. Um, and that helped a lot because there was a great need for the delivery at the time. Obviously it was just, there's so much implications to getting into business with, uh, with a third party app that was, it was untenable for so many reasons. So it's really cool to hear that you guys are, able to put it together. It takes, it's not as intuitive as people think setting up and doing it because it is so easy to just jump in with a third party. They make it like flipping a switch. So it's interesting. I mean, I'm sure your experience, so has it worked out for you? Has it been good? Yeah, it's complicated. It's very complicated. And, and, you know, we want to, you know, I still, we still want to have the best food and excellent customer service possible. Right. So now you know, we're in a car for 20 minutes and it sat on the line for four minutes before it got packaged. And now it's in an aluminum pan where it was on a plate. And, 
we're sending you silverware and, you know, so there's sustainability. I mean, there are so many factors that played a role in it, but we were, our experience with the third party was that they were just run amok truthfully. And the drivers did what they wanted to do. They weren't wearing masks when we were mandated in our state to wear masks. They would come in and just cut line, you know, just like work their way right up register when we had customers that were also standing there with groceries in their hands or waiting online to pay for what they had ordered on the so and their percentages were unreasonable unreal i mean up to 40 percent paying in fees so you know after i sell a ten dollar hamburger which costs me four dollars i'm literally making a quarter and for that amount of work it lost all credibility. Yeah. And I think I like that you talked about the like the restaurant experience because we've talked about this so much before as well, Zach, and this third party and how you're kind of you're giving your restaurant experience out to someone else to handle. And like you said before, there was a lot of conversations at the beginning of the pandemic, what packaging to use, what items are actually going to travel well and what sh- what aren't, what needs to be deconstructed so that the bun doesn't get soggy when it's delivered to you, like what needs to be separated out. And I agree, even now when I, when I order, if I order food from, um, I mean, I'm, I'm 10, now that it's warmed up in Chicago, I'm going out a lot more, but to outdoor patios. But you know, when I, when, when I would get food ordered in, I would try to ask for no silverware, no extras, because I'm really big on that myself. And I think about all the waste. So much. So many packets, so many things. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what some t- statistics are as the next year or so, because the waste that we created this past year and a half was really extreme. I mean, the, and with plastic more than anything, a lot of the other stuff does eventually break down and it's not as bad, mm-hmm. but the plastic itself. I is, shudder to think about it. And we use compostable packaging, compostable silverware, compostable cups. And again, another 20% on top of the costs, you know? Yeah. It's not cheap. We have the same, we, I run a seasonal business out on governor's Island and we're required out there to produce zero waste. So we're not allowed to, to bring anything. We can't sell like individually packaged chips or bottled, bottled water and plastic packaging. We can do recyclable cans and bottles, but every other utensil plate, everything we use has to be compostable. Uh, And because of that experience, we, knew how to kind of switch over like we can use the corn resin cups for you know for people who are staying and and a lot of our our utensils same thing they're compostable but still at the end of the day i remember thinking i was like this is ungodly how much we're throwing away so much more waste was generated for a time when our business wasn't even as uh, as booming as it was in normal times and it it, i I shudder at the thought of it so and I, i think going forward a lot of other people i've spoken with in the industry like share our vision on that or or share our opinion on that and I'm really curious to see what the green initiatives look like in the next like five, 10 years as a result. I know everyone already had that in the front of their mind, but I feel like there's a, there's like a kind of revived uh, incentive to, to be really good about environmental stuff. It's, it's a challenge. You know, we, there, we work with a uh, system that's already been built for online ordering and, you know, we can manipulate it a little bit, but, you know, we want to ask if you want utensils, if you need butter, if you need syrup, salt and pepper, and all that stuff. And um, we have a default right. that if you don't request it, we're not going to send it. Right. So then you end up in this battle with the customers. Like, why wouldn't you send me yeah. ketchup when I ordered French fries? Like, well, it, you know, it was an option for you to order it. You missed it. I get it. And you know what I mean? So then it's you're, you feel like you're sending stuff out that's going to the trash or you're sending stuff out and you're not sending stuff out that people need. It, it is really a conundrum. It's been a challenge. I'll tell you, customer service, you know, that's our, that, that's what we're best at right now is apologizing for um, not understanding you or not you know, giving you what exactly we, we thought we were yeah. giving you. I feel like I, I told someone, I was like the, the word, the, the phrase of 2020 for me was, I'm sorry. Uh, seriously. I like, I talked about that with so many people. It was just like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, for so many reasons, but I'm super sorry about this. So. Yeah. Sorry you didn't get ketchup. Yeah. I feel like I say I'm sorry a lot on the podcast for all of our tech glitches, which our listeners never get to hear. <laughs> all right. So I want to talk about some of the fun stuff that you've done in your restaurant. I know you did a flash mob for your 16th anniversary. I want to hear more about this. 
Yeah, we, we've actually done a few flash mobs. Um, I love that. <laughs> I know. Well, I you know I like a party. We um, we've done a few of them. We first we did a flash mob where we went through a flash mob company. It was actually based in L.A. and they found they found a dancer in Pittsburgh because we have actually a bunch of art schools. So it all worked out, and we we practiced. We went to this evening rehearsal. A bunch of nights we called community members in just kind of put a calling out and yeah. it was a secret nobody knew where it was what it was for anything like that and then the morning of the anniversary a song we have a dj at our anniversary every year so a song comes on and all of a sudden all the people just start creeping in either up out of the seats or creeping in from outside and we break out into this whole dance routine <laughs> With it, we all had the same shirt on. <laughs> like us. Very cool. Yeah, exactly. We, again, listeners can't see it, but we are all matching today. So um, it's happening. Please tell me, though, that the flash mob is somewhere on YouTube that I can watch. I need I to so. see this. I got to find <laughs> out. We've done a couple. So we did that one. And then we did another. Uh, then we did like a drum. There's a drum line that plays for the um, sports teams in Pittsburgh. Uh, so we had them one year, the drum line, and they came and all of a sudden they start walking in from different parts of the block and you can hear all this drumming and that was, and then they just, you know, they're like mad skills and they're just wow. going nuts on each other's <laughs> drums. And so that was so, so much fun. I mean, I bet no one um, needed extra cups of coffee after that. I'm thinking yeah. about 8 a.m. when I'm sitting here with pancakes and eggs and I'm like, no more refills on my coffee, please. And it's like Sunday morning, you know, you think you're just going to chill yeah. have maybe bring the newspaper in the olden days. Mm -hmm. And then we did a steel drum band one time. There's a high school that has a steel drum band in our neighborhood and they brought a bunch of kids over and my son was actually in the steel drum back in his days and they played on the street in that. Um, yeah. So we've done a few kind of flashy mobby things like that. We always have, for our anniversary, we always have a balloon artist guy. He makes these amazing hats and animals and umbrellas and swords. And the whole dining room is full of like, you know, these eight foot hats off of, you know, grandma's head and the whole family sitting around a table eating pancakes with these colorful balloon hats. And we have, a, we have a DJ and that's, that's so much fun. So, so my last question for you, Sherry, is what does, um, What's next for Square Cafe? What's next for you? What does the future hold for you guys? Besides the brand new big digs that you guys have. Yeah, it, it's amazing. We have several different dining rooms. We have a rooftop deck. We bought a liquor license, which in Pennsylvania is a bit of a hassle. But so now we do, we're selling mimosas and really fun cocktail-y, brunchy types of things. Some local beer vendors are in. Um, so that we, we just, are you working with the brew gentleman by any chance? We, I've worked with the brew gentleman way back when we were in our old space. We did a, um, we did a brew that was uh, a pumpkin walnut pancake batter, which we do on our menu. We did a beer with them. And so in the fall, no way. Yeah. This has <laughs> got to be 2010 or something or 11. I don't know. It was a long time ago. We did a, yeah, that's right when they were starting, right when they were starting. Yep. Uh, but they were just literally, they're on the same road as I am about a mile and a half away. The old, you're kidding me. So Matt Katase yes. is a good buddy of mine. Uh, okay. He used to, he used to come visit New York and he would always post up and hang out and we became good friends. Yeah. And, uh, it's just funny. They're honestly the best beer I've had in Pittsburgh, which is saying a lot. Cause you guys have some good we stuff. Have a lot of stuff. That's incredible that you've worked with them. That's so cool. So yeah, we <laughs> did a, we did a pumpkin walnut, uh, brew in the fall one year with them. I think it was called oh, Square Cafe so cool. Pancake, yeah, or something. It was cool. I got to ask him about that. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so sorry, we, I didn't mean to derail that question. I just realized I meant to ask that earlier. <laughs> yeah. We, we're, you know, we, staffing is an issue. I'm probably, you know, still 12 people down from where we want to be ultimately. So right now we're trying to contain what we're doing so that we can do it well. I don't want to, obviously, we don't want to screw anything up. And so we have the capacity to do, to do so much more, but we just don't have the manpower to do it yet. So we're really looking forward to renting our spaces and having catering and evening events. We're going to start um, drag dinners once a month and, um, you know, some other kinds of neighborhoody things. So lots of stuff's happening. No, I, I'm really excited. How does it feel just like, like a touch off point? Does it feel like it's heading in the right direction right now? Or how's Pittsburgh and your neighborhood uh, evolving in these, in these crazy times? Yeah. In the last couple of weeks, you know, now we're mid-May and 
late May, I guess. And since we're in a very healthcare dense city, so a lot of people are vaccinated because they were the first ones to get vaccinated. Um, and so a lot of people are vaccinated. I think that um, people we're in a in a city and it's a bit more restrictive in a way that more people are wearing masks than as soon as you venture out, less masks are worn. So I think we've contained a lot of it here. So people are feeling more comfortable. Our space is so big and the ceilings are so high that it doesn't feel, and we also have a filtration system that kills 99% of all germs. So we've kind of like done as much as we can to mitigate our risks. My staff are all masked and most of them have been double yeah. masked for this wow. whole 14 months. So. Well, Sherry, I hope that you have a TikTok account because I think that all of this cool, fun things that you guys are doing could easily go viral. And we're, we're talking about social content a lot with restaurants and everything. And I think, wow, like this is the perfect restaurant to be doing this. We talk about it all the time and we're so darn busy. I'm like, would you please TikTok that? I don't even know what it is. Yeah. My managers are all into it, right? We have these little itty bitty <laughs> Oh yeah, and those little hands. We do we do fun videos. Oh yes, yes. Beating yourself with this little hand. I'm like, should we should, we need to. Do so we do. We put it on our list. Yeah. We put it on FaceTime, Facebook. <laughs> but we need to do more for sure. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. We have little hands that pull out our cinnamon rolls. Oh yeah, rolls, that sounds great. Right, the videotape of these little itty bitty hands making cinnamon rolls. <laughs> Love it. Well, we look forward to seeing all of that and more. Thank you so much for being here with us today. This was awesome. And I can't wait to see what's up next. And I'll be I'll be watching Square Cafe. Yeah. Awesome. Look forward to and look forward to talking again. Thank you. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, eat.news. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at boh underscore podcast and at we are back of house on all other platforms. <laughs>